Dear Father, I thank you, Father, that you have entrusted to me and to the other leaders in this church the privilege of ministering at Oak Hill Bible Church and to the people who have been gathered here under your name for so many years. Father, the the work of serving you is a a work of joy, even if at times we find a way to turn it into burden. And serving you, Father, has such great reward, even if it seems to be nothing but an expense. And that's only because of the way we look at things in our selfishness, Father, and the way we add up our our own desires and put them ahead of yours. But, Lord, when we put it in the right perspective and we see this work as eternal and when we understand how important your people are to you, it's then that we begin to understand the privilege that we have. And not just myself and elders at this church, Father, but every man and woman who has come to serve in some capacity has taken on that burden with us. And together, Father, we seek to serve in thankful hearts for what you've done for us on the cross. And I thank you for a building, for a room in which we come together to remember that sacrifice, to understand it better, to be prepared to explain it to others, so that we would always be ready to make a defense for the hope that lies within us, Father. Thank you for the opportunity to know the things you've given us in your word. And Lord, as I speak today, Father, I pray that you would have mercy on me as a teacher, that you would be able to speak clearly, though I can't, and that you'd be able to explain things in the hearts of those who hear, even when I'm unable to do it. We rely on that, Father. Thank you for that grace this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we are approaching the climactic moment in our short story of Ruth, although I have found a way to make it long. Um, This is the story of Ruth and Boaz now at the end of three, and, and really it becomes the story of Boaz in four. As it really should be, as we know, Boaz is a picture of Christ, and since all that we have in our faith is centered on Christ, it's only appropriate then that a story that pictures him should eventually focus entirely on his work. Where we are in the story now, having come near the end of chapter 3, is Ruth has followed Naomi's instructions on the night of the harvest. She's approached Boaz respectfully, according to what Naomi told her to do. And in that approach, he took up her invitation for a marriage proposal. She invited the proposal, and she was rewarded with Boaz's promise that he would redeem her one way or another. At the end of that, Ruth spent the evening with Boaz without anyone being the wiser, so that Boaz's reputation would not be compromised. But now Boaz has also told Ruth there was a problem, that it's not all smooth sailing. We have the problem now of a legal hurdle. There's a closer relative, he tells Ruth, that must be dealt with before Boaz can act to redeem her. That's where we left off last time. We're at the end of chapter 3. Let's pick up again in that conversation in verse 11, and then to the end of the chapter and into chapter 4 this morning. Ruth 3.11, it reads, Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Now, it is true, I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So, she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Again he said, Give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it. And he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, 
How did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, Do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then she said, Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. So as we rejoin the story, we saw again last week some of the same verses. So we remember Boaz explaining to Ruth that he was prohibited from acting on her behalf because there is this closer relative, this other man that doesn't get named in the story, who is a step closer to her in relations. And the Hebrew word here translated closer relative, it is the word for kinsman redeemer. So what Boaz has just said, in effect, is... I can't redeem you because I am not legally the kinsman redeemer in this case. I'm not the one appointed by law. The other man is technically the one who must act to redeem you. But then he adds, look, if this man's not going to step up to the plate and do what the law requires that he do for you, well then he says, I am prepared to step in and assume that responsibility in his place. Now I've said before, Boaz was not obligated to do anything that he's doing here. He's voluntarily assuming the role in the case where Ruth is found to be lacking a redeemer. Meanwhile, Boaz protects Ruth through the rest of that night. You know, we looked last week at the eschatology of this chapter. That is, in the way that Boaz pictures Christ, Ruth pictures the church, and Naomi pictures Israel. And at this moment, at night, at the threshing floor, and so on, we studied last week how this is a picture of the church having been removed from the earth, raptured as we say, brought to our Savior at His feet, so to speak, in safety, during a period of night, that is a darkness on the earth, a time of reaping. All of these things picture the tribulation that will come to Israel in the absence of the church after we've been removed and taken to be safe with our Redeemer. And now, back to the main story, just consider the reality of what happens in practical terms. You have a woman who is alone, she's single, obviously, she's uh, out at night, so if Boaz were to have told her at this point, okay, we got our plan, go on home, I'll see you tomorrow, that would have been a very callous thing for him to do. This would have put her safety at great risk. A young girl walking alone at night was a recipe for disaster. And Boaz protects her, he puts her safety above even his own Reputation, Because had it been the case that someone out there had come along in the middle of the night and noticed that there was this woman lying at the feet of this man, both of them single, not married to one another, that would have put his reputation at risk. Or at the very least, there would have been the insinuation that something was going on. And gossip sometimes is worse, often is worse, than the truth. So Boaz protects her at his own risk. And in keeping the visit secret, Boaz is also protecting her. You notice it says there that he gives direction in verse 14 to his servants. Don't repeat what you've seen. Don't tell anyone that she has come here. He's protecting her reputation as well. Because for the same reason, if word got out that she's going out in the middle of the night and spending evenings with strange men, that isn't going to serve her well in this culture either. Now just to be clear, Boaz is not asking his servants to lie, and I want you to be clear on this, because no one was going to ask them about something that wasn't publicly known anyway. It's not as though they were going to have this question put to them. What he's asking them for here is discretion. He's asking them to simply not say anything so as not to encourage gossip or lying. Because nothing did go wrong. Everything was perfectly appropriate. By not mentioning it, you don't give opportunity for those who have false intentions of turning that innocent situation into something that it wasn't. 
Furthermore, Boaz continues to care for Ruth and for Naomi's needs, even in the midst of all this planning. You notice that he gives her this grain. Now, in the past, God has allowed for these women to see their provision come through Boaz, but by means of gleaning. Remember, Ruth would go out every day and she'd glean in the field. That's how they were getting their provision. But friends, it's the harvest, right? No more gleaning. No more harvest. All the stuff that was in the field is gone now. And yet, God is still providing and Boaz is still concerned with their needs. So he gives Ruth a portion of grain to take home, not just for herself, but as you heard, he was also thinking of Naomi in the process. Now the text here says six measures of barley, and the word there for measure doesn't relate to any specific measure. It's not ephah or something like that. It's just a generic word for an amount, six amounts. Six widgets. It doesn't have any specific meaning. And therefore, what likely it means is it's not a specific measurement. It was, it was Boaz just taking that pile of grain that was sitting next to him and just grabbing six scoopfuls and just going like this. So it's not a lot. It's plenty. It's enough for two women to eat for a, you know, a couple days, three days, four days. It's certainly not a lifetime supply. It's nothing like a bushel was where it would last a month. So the fact that he sent her home with enough grain for a few days... That in itself is an indication to us of how quickly Boaz expects to act on this matter. Remember, there's no more gleaning, so whatever he gave her at this point, that's all they're going to have, and there's no prospect for more. They don't really know where the next meal would be coming from. But what Boaz is thinking is, these women are not going to be alone for long. One way or another, they're soon going to have a marriage which will then result in a provision, so they only need a few days' worth of grain to get by until this matter is settled. And when Ruth gets the report to Naomi, and Naomi sees what Ruth has received in the amount of grain that she's carrying in this bundle, well, then she says to her daughter, don't worry, just wait. This matter is going to get resolved quickly. In fact, she says, today. How does she know that? It's my supposition that she knows it because of the relatively small amount of grain that has just been given to these women. She can see that Boaz does not expect to have to wait very long because he didn't make provision for any longer. And sure enough, Boaz does act quickly. And now that takes us into chapter 4. And as I said, we're really now looking at Boaz as the central character of the story. He's always been in the background. Now he comes to the foreground. Verse 1. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. All right, let's stop there. There's a lot of intrigue here that I think is fun to bring out in the story, and it'll help us really understand what's going on. So this is the next morning, right? So he didn't wait at all. And he goes to the gate of the city. Now, if you're not familiar with ancient uh, architecture or the way that cities worked in, in ancient times, it, it would perhaps surprise you to hear that everybody's meeting at the gate. You might wonder, why is everybody at the gate? Well, that, the, the reality of this situation is a consequence of the way cities protected themselves in this day and time. Cities in ancient times were surrounded by high walls. That was their principal means of protection. If you've traveled anywhere in that part of the world, you'll know. You see these old ruins, and they always have some kind of wall in some condition today, but you can see where it was. And of course, if you're in a city and you have a big wall around you, there's got to be some way to get in and out of the city, obviously, right? And when you add a gate to a fortified wall, you instantly make that place in the wall the most vulnerable part of the wall and the weakest link in your security. 
So it's a double-edged sword in a sense, right? You want to get in and out, but you don't want the bad guys to get in and out, and yet you can't really get one without the other. If you open the gate to let the city's residents go in and out, then you're also opening it to anyone who might be hiding, ready to pounce on the city in that moment. And, of course, they don't just open the door when someone knocks. This isn't, knock, knock, who's there? Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar who? No. You know, they don't, it doesn't work that way, right? So gates were actually fortified chambers. They're not the kind of thing you think of today when we say gate. You need to think of a room. It's a fortified chamber of rooms, actually, because these walls were thick enough, and they were especially thick at the gates, so that it wasn't just a single brick line. They would actually create a full structure inwardly into the city at the point of the gate, so that what the gate was was not a single entry into the city at all. The visitor would first come to an outer door. That outer door, if it were open, allowed you to pass into a chamber which had inside all of these other rooms to the left and to the right. So it's a larger structure. You're still in the wall, though. You haven't even gotten into the city yet. Inside that chamber, you have guards stationed at the top where the wall top is. So you have the the top of the wall going around the city. When it gets to the point of the gate, it goes left and right and comes out as a big square before continuing on on the next side to the rest of the wall. And along that top area, you have guards stationed all around. They can see down into the chamber that is created at that entry point. So if by chance an army breaches that outer door and manages to fight their way into the chamber, well, there's another door on the other side that they'd have to breach as well. That second door is what gets you into the city. But it takes time to breach a door. And while you're in that little chamber trying to breach the second door, you're sitting ducks. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. All the folks up on the top of the wall, arrows or spears, are taking out the people who are in the chamber. So it's an effective defense because of the way it slows penetration into the city while giving you an advantage in the battle for the gate. All right, so this is the way architecture evolved over history was to create these gates, these chambered rooms as entry points. Nevertheless, a city is is ultimately a place of commerce. You know, people from the surrounding areas outside the city are going to want to travel regularly in and out of the city to conduct business on a daily basis. Typically at night, everything was locked up tight, and then at a certain point in every day, they'd open them up for business. But when people are coming in and out of the city to buy and to sell, the ones who live in the city don't necessarily want just anyone walking in. You want to know who they are and why they're coming in. So if someone needed to come into the city, either to conduct official business with leaders of the city or to do commerce, obviously to do trade, they had to go through these gates and they were typically going to be vetted. They were going to be inspected to know who they were, why they were coming in, and so on. And if you're not coming in to do business in the city, you're just coming in to do some kind of official matter with the leadership, well, then we'd rather you not get into the city at all, because then we might lose track of you. Let's just keep you as little in the city as possible. So a practice developed to bring the leadership, the judges, the elders, or whomever, from the inside of the city, out to the gates. And they actually set up their courts or their official rooms of business in the chambers of the gate. So if you were outside the city and you needed to do business, you could come into the chamber, do business, and then leave and never actually have access into the city proper. That was the idea. So these chambers became something like little bazaars where merchants were lined up selling and trading within this space, where you had other chambers that were like city hall. You have judges holding court. You'd have elders having meetings. And so the chambers of a city became a very vibrant, important part of the life of a city and yet they still serve this purpose of protection. So when you hear that Boaz goes into 
the gate of the city. And of course, as you may remember from chapter 1, the city here is Bethlehem. We're talking about the city of Bethlehem. So if you ever go visit the city of Bethlehem and you see some of the ruins of the gates, one of those gates Boaz was sitting in. So in a gate of the city of Bethlehem, what you need to understand is that's like saying Boaz just went to city hall. And so he goes there early in the morning precisely so that he can catch this relative, this other man, as he is leaving the city for the day, probably to go work the fields during the harvest as well. So he loiters, essentially, in this gate for a while, watching everyone who's walking through, and then he sees the guy he's waiting for. And as he sees him, he goes up to this man, and he says, turn aside, which simply means, hey, stop for a second, very friendly greeting, and asks him to sit down. I assume the man knew Boaz, they're related after all, so he probably stopped in response to the greeting, and he's just expecting to sit down, catch up, hey, how you doing? That's perfectly normal. Um, But the fact that he's doing it in the gate of the city might have suggested that he had a more serious purpose. And if the guy had any doubt at all, the next moment, all doubt is erased because Boaz assembles ten men from among the elders of the city. So I have to imagine he has pre-positioned that. He has already gone to these guys, said, I have a meeting, I conduct some business, I need you ready, I'm waiting for this other guy to show up, when he shows up, we'll meet. It's almost like he's just been ambushed, right? The guy walks through and his friend says, hey, come on, sit down. Oh, yeah, hey, how are you doing? All of a sudden, bam, ten other guys sit down. He's like, what did I do wrong? What's going on? It would appear as though Boaz had every intention to catch this guy a little off guard. And as you'll see with what goes on next, he's playing a game of sorts here without sinning with an eye toward a certain outcome. He's very shrewd. He's going to be a really good example for us as we go through this next part of the story of something Jesus says in the Gospels to the disciples shortly before his death. He says they were to be as wise as serpents, but as innocent as doves, which is a tension that every Christian is supposed to maintain in their walk with Christ, which is to say we are supposed to at all times be without sin. That would be innocent as a dove. But that doesn't mean we have to be naive. It doesn't mean we don't have to be creative. And while sometimes we mistake creativity for lying or deception, and that is certainly the case for some people, that's not a necessity. There can be a very firm line between sin and doing things that are creative, that are even, to some people's impression, manipulative, but all with a heart to do what's right for God and what's godly and what's righteous and without sin. In fact, if you've ever been a missionary in parts of the world where Christianity is not embraced or is, in fact, persecuted, China would be the example we used this morning from what the Dexters are doing. When I was there visiting them in China, it's evident that they have really learned this skill of being as wise as a serpent and as innocent as doves. They do not break laws, they do not sin, but they do everything they can to get around the persecution that is there around them in order to do what they're there to do. It's a really interesting kind of mix. Boaz is a perfect biblical example of this kind of thinking. He is being incredibly creative and very intentional. He has an outcome. He's trying to get everybody to go where he wants them to go, but he's not going to sin in the process. So this is what comes next. With Boaz and his relative and these ten men assembled in the gate, what's just come to pass now is an official inquiry. These guys are elders. They're not all the elders. We're told these are ten of them. But these men, a collection of ten now, form not so much a jury, because this isn't a trial, more of a witness to something. For legal purposes, there needs to be a witness to say that something actually happened, that it was formally done. So these guys are going to form a group of witnesses to witness what's about to be settled between these two men concerning law. 
So no man is going to be able to go back on his word. No one's going to be able to claim that there was a misunderstanding. No guy's going to be able to say this didn't happen. It's all going to be on record. That's the effect of what Boaz is doing. These elders never say anything. They don't need to. The conversation is just between the two parties that have an issue here. And by the way, I should add, when this conversation is over, the matter will be finished. Boaz will be able to say it is finished when he deals with this issue and it is complete. Verse 3, this is what takes place. Then Boaz said to the closest relative, Naomi, who's come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So, I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. Then he said, well, I will redeem it. To understand what Boaz is doing here, you have to know a little bit about the laws of this time and the customs. So let's begin with, with where Boaz begins. He starts the conversation announcing to this relative, you remember Naomi? You know, the wife of our brother Elimelech. You know, she's come back. Oh, yeah, yeah, she's come back. I heard things weren't so good with her. Yeah, it's tough times. She's kind of fallen on bad times. And in fact, she's got that property, you know, Elimelech's old property. She's received it now that she has come back in the land, but um, it's not doing well. You know, this property, remember, was left fallow for 10 years. No one's been farming it. And if you've ever worked land, you know, if you leave it for 10 years, what kind of work now has to happen to get it back to the point of being productive? That's not the work that a widow without a son is going to have the strength to pursue. And as a result, though she has wealth in the form of this land, it's not capital that she can put to use to support her because she can't work the land. And she doesn't have money to go pay workers to work the land. I mean, she's in sort of that catch-22 where she has something that can't work for her and she has nothing more to put it to work. And so under those circumstances, she probably did have no choice but to consider selling this property. Now, with the funds from selling it, she could then go and provide for herself for a while. Now, the law of Moses addresses this very situation specifically in Leviticus. This is what it says in Leviticus 25:24. Thus, for every piece of your property, you are to provide for the redemption of the land. If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor, he has to sell part of his property, and that would be Naomi, then his nearest kinsman, there you go again, a kinsman redeemer, is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. So, in other words, Naomi has to sell to provide for herself. She has to sell to survive. But under those circumstances, the law wanted to make sure that the property didn't leave the family, the tribe. And so to make sure it didn't get sold out of the family's control, it had to be sold within the family. Or if it had been sold outside the family, then someone in the family had to go redeem it. That is, buy it back for the family. That's the idea of a redeemer in this case. So the intent of the law is to let the family hold on to their land. What Boaz is suggesting then to this relative is, you know when Naomi sells it, that we want to keep this in the family. You're the kinsman redeemer. You're probably the oldest son or some other way he's the closest relative. You have first dibs on this property. Would you like to buy this land? Now, if the man wouldn't buy it, Boaz says, well, I'm prepared to do that. I'd like to have this land. Boaz would buy it if the other relative declines. So here's what Boaz is betting. Boaz is betting that the opportunity to purchase land is going to be too good an opportunity for this relative to pass up. I mean, he's naturally going to jump at the chance to enrich himself through a distress purchase without a bidding war with anyone else. This is the perfect way to buy land, right? A good deal, a brother-in-law deal on some good land. 
Finally, notice that Boaz says there, Elimelech was a brother to these men. Now, we can't be sure he means it literally. He could just mean it in a general sense as a relative. But regardless, what he's saying is, these men, Boaz and this other relative, they share a blood relationship. Something we'll talk about next week. Immediately, the man says, as you see, okay, yeah, I'll take it. Good deal for me. Why not? I'll buy the land. Which is exactly what Boaz knew he would say. Boaz has played this guy and done it well. He has drawn this man out into the open. Remember, the law places no timetable on the actions of a kinsman redeemer. There's no deadlines. This relative has the right of first refusal. No one else can act until he makes a decision. And yet, the law doesn't put any timetable on his decision. So, theoretically, legally, he could defer forever. He could just never make a decision which would freeze everybody else. No one else could act in the meantime. Boaz knows that he has to act for the sake of these women. In the meantime, he can't wait. And he's trying to draw this guy out. So here's what he's done. By offering the land first, he has brought this man out of indecisiveness, off the fence, so to speak, and forced him to commit to whether or not he will accept the kinsman redeemer role. He's done it now. He said, I will do it in front of ten witnesses. He's made a decision. And by committing to buy the land, there's something else that happens. He has officially assumed the role of kinsman redeemer for Naomi's family. That's a brilliant tactic because he gave the man an incentive to act rather than to defer. And now with the land as a bait, the guy has stepped up to the plate. Now I want you to try to help you understand the strategy here by using an analogy. I want to draw a parallel to something that could happen for us today. I want you to suppose that my brother had found this great used car for sale. The car belonged to an older man who barely ever drove it. It only has 10,000 miles on it. And now he's gone, he's died, and his widow is trying to sell the car cheap. This is the deal we all dream of, right? So the car's a steal, and I really want to buy it, but my brother found it first. He saw it first, and so, you know, I really can't swoop in underneath him and buy the car while he's thinking about it. I really need to give him first chance to make a decision if I'm going to do what's right. And again, Boaz is doing what's right. But my brother's hesitating. He won't make a decision. So here we are talking about it. And meanwhile, what's going to happen? I'm worried some other person will show up and buy the car, right? I can't control what the world would do. So I tell this brother of mine, I say, look, I want to buy that car if you don't want to buy it. And so I'm going to give you to the end of today to make a decision. And if you don't make a decision by the end of the day, I'm going to go buy it tomorrow. So in effect, I'm giving him first chance, but I'm also letting him know he has to commit one way or another. He can't be indecisive forever or he'll lose the chance to buy it. That's what Boaz has done here. Boaz has forced the relative to take a stand or get out of the way and with the opportunity to buy land, it seemed like such a great deal, the guy stepped forward. Now, there are some differences between my analogy and what's going on here, not the least of which is we're talking about cars versus wives, but more importantly, first, Boaz is engaged in a legal question here. There's no law that says someone has to buy that widow's car in my analogy. That's the difference. But in Boaz's situation, there was a law that said there had to be a redeemer. So it was only a matter of who, not a matter of if. So when the relative commits to the purchase, he, as I said earlier, he assumed the legal identity of kinsman redeemer. Once that legal identity attaches, it can't be revoked. It can't be refused. To become a kinsman redeemer means to assume all the legal obligations that come with that title. So the law requires him to do a certain number of things, and he's obligated to keep all of them if he's going to step into the role. 
So, of course, that means with the elders watching, he will now be on the hook not only for the land, but as you all probably have guessed, he's also going to be on the hook to redeem the wife that needs a son. And so the law requires that a kinsman redeemer redeem the land. And in the presence of the elders, excited at the prospect of doing it, he says, I will do it. And then the catch. And this is the second difference, by the way. Verse 5. Boaz says, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. So Boaz reminds the relative, if you're going to assume responsibility as kinsman redeemer, for Naomi, for her land that is, well then you've got to be prepared to do all of it, friend. Not only do you have to do the land, but you have to redeem this widow that is in Naomi's house, this Moabitess, you may remember this lady that came into town with Naomi, Ruth, yeah, you've got to marry her. Now this would be like me telling my brother, oh, I forgot to mention there's a catch on the car. If you buy the widow's car, you also have to marry the widow. Right? I'm sure that's going to diminish his interest greatly in the purchase. And that's exactly what Boaz was expecting in this case as well. I mean, as you may remember about this a few weeks back, the Levite marriage requirement that Deuteronomy 25.5 says, When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. So the Redeemer has to marry the widow in a case where that woman has not received an heir yet and there's a potential then for that family name to die out in Israel. Instead, this Redeemer swoops in, marries the woman. First son out of that marriage will be considered, legally considered, the son of the deceased man. And that means he'll take on not just the name, but he'll have that man's inheritance as well. Think about this for a minute. In such a case, the child born to that union was legally the offspring of the deceased. And therefore, the property of Naomi would flow to that child. So in this way, what Boaz has compelled out of this relative is that the relative make a decision regarding not just the land, but also the marriage. The opportunity to buy land was dangled in front of him. He jumped at that. Now when he hears, oh, there's this catch, it's going to cause him to rethink the whole deal. But I'm going to assume for a moment that this relative was not an idiot. And what I mean by that is this. He probably assumed that redeeming Naomi's land was going to mean he would also have to redeem Naomi. He probably assumed that, because I don't know why he wouldn't have assumed that. That would have been common knowledge. But he also would have known that Naomi has passed childbearing years. So, he probably thought, well, I'll have to take a widow into my house. She can have the room in the back. She can probably help with the cleaning and cooking. That's not such a bad deal. But I don't need to worry about actually having any children that could then impact my own inheritance. She's just going to be a widow in the house for a few years. Fair enough price to get some good land. That's what he's assuming. Evidently, though, he either hadn't heard or he hadn't considered the situation of Ruth. And the fact that she didn't have any children either. And that as a member of the family, she needed to be redeemed as well. Had he suspected that, I think he might have deferred on the decision. That is to say, he wouldn't have said no. He would have just said, not today. He would have played the waiting game. Because look at it this way. He could have waited years or even decades until Ruth was also past childbearing years. Maybe by then Naomi's dead. And then he could have said, I'll be the redeemer and gotten away with what he probably was assuming he was going to get here. That is, the land with no responsibility to have to father a child. But now he's trapped. He's trapped by his own words. He said, I'll be the redeemer, which means he has to commit to taking Ruth as a wife and raising up her first son as the deceased son. He can't say, I'll wait. He can't say, I'll think about it. He's already on the record. 
So Boaz has played this guy really well. He put forth the opportunity to purchase the land, to gain the man's commitment. Then he introduces into the deal the whole idea of the wife, knowing it's going to make the man's interest go away. But now the guy is on the record, so it can't be left to another day. Predictably, the man declines. Verse 6. The closest relative says, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. So he changes his mind. He says, I can't be the kinsman redeemer after all. And he says, I can't do it because it would jeopardize my own inheritance. Here's what he means. In order for him to buy this land, he's going to have to bring money to the table, obviously, if he were to redeem it. Let's just assume he's got a bank account somewhere. He's going to take money out of his bank, and he's going to put it on the table, and he's going to buy the land. Where's that money going to go? Well, the money's going to have to go to Naomi. That's not his family. Now Naomi is another family. So he's moving wealth out of his own family into Naomi's family in order to take on this land. But when the child of Ruth is born, that child will receive Naomi's land as his inheritance. For it's as if that child always existed. You act as if that child was the son of the deceased, which predates all of these other arrangements. So it's like going back in time. As soon as that child is born, we sort of reset. That land is now the son's, and we go back to that point in time. But the problem is the money that went to Naomi, that's gone. The man would have taken money out of his bank that would have effectively been his inheritance, something he could have passed on, and he would have spent it for land that he couldn't hold on to. And so what he's saying is, I can't redeem it because I'm taking my wealth out of my pocket for something I can't hold on to. Because as soon as the sun comes along, I'm going to lose it. Because it won't be mine. His own wealth is more important to him than this woman or the law or the need for what has to be done under law. So in that sense, he's saying, my love of my own wealth exceeds my love for Naomi's family. And so he says, I don't want to be kinsman redeemer. After all, I cannot redeem this land. I cannot redeem Naomi. And many of you probably see, even now, some parallels that we'll address in our second story next week. I mean, Christ is our redeemer, would be the most obvious. And of the church being redeemed and so on. Even of Israel, ultimately, which we'll talk about as well. And we'll look at all these parallels. But do you also wonder who this other relative is? You know, he's not named... But he is picturing something in our second story, a person actually. And without ruining it, I won't tell you today who he's picturing. But give some thought to the one who couldn't redeem, to the close relative who was inadequate. And we'll look next week at how that begins to fill out our second story of Boaz and Christ and what Christ did in redeeming us under law. Pray with me. Dear Father, we love pictures in Scripture, Father. They're like puzzles. They're, they give us a thrill when we start to see it all coming together. But, Father, they, they serve such an important purpose in our understanding as well. They remind us that you have been working for many millennia to create a story that you authored. And when we see the details of it in pictures, Father, we can gain confirmation that you were at work long before we could have detected you. That's true in the annals of history, Father, but it's also true in our own personal walk. That you knew us before we knew you. You had a plan before we understood it. You were working in that plan before we recognized it. Father, that's the true meaning of grace. And we are so thankful, Father, that you extended uh, extended it to us for no reasons of our own, by no merit of uh, of our own, Father. You, You stepped into our life and you have done an amazing work redeeming us from the penalty we deserved. And 
building us up in the knowledge and grace of Christ. I just thank you, Father, for that, for that mercy, for those in here who have received it, for the many more who will in your plan. Let us, Father, work in that grace, understanding it and being amazed by it and then motivated to work with it, Father, to be useful to you. Thank you, Father, for Oak Hill, for the food that's going to be given to us here. I pray, Father, a blessing on the meal that you will use it to nourish our bodies and that our hearts will reflect in thankfulness over what you provide. And for the workers and those who have supported the the putting of this event together, Father, thank you for their hands of service and for their hearts as well. Bless our time as we fellowship. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.